All right, well, this morning we are going to be continuing through our study through the Beatitudes. And we come this morning to Beatitude number six. If you haven't been with us, the Beatitudes are these eight statements that Jesus makes at the beginning of his famous Sermon on the Mount. He makes these eight successive statements, beginning with blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as we'll see in a couple weeks, he winds up by saying, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He begins and ends with the kingdom of heaven. And then in between, he has all these statements. And we've been going one by one through them all. And this morning, we come to number six, which is blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And I want to begin with this one statement, and I think it's true. The heart is what you are. Full stop. The heart is what you are. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In our culture, That word heart typically means, and we all know this, the seat of emotions, right? This is, we talk about our feelings when we talk about our hearts as English-speaking Americans. But in the Bible, in both the Old Testament Hebrew and the New Testament Greek usage, that word has a much broader meaning that includes our emotions, but is not limited to that. When God speaks of your heart in his word, He is talking about your inner person and the total person, the true inner reality of who we really are. For example, in 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says this, But the Lord said to Samuel, speaking of David's older brother Eliab, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. In other words, the Lord looks and he sees the inner place from which all the outward stuff springs. And and this can be both an encouraging thought and a deeply chilling thought, can't it? (laughs) I'm aware of my own heart, and I take comfort when I am falsely maligned or criticized or misunderstood. Somebody will say, oh, you're motivated in this way. And I look within my heart, and I honestly feel like my motives, I mean well, but I'm being misunderstood. And isn't it comforting in those moments to know that God has a perfect vision of your inner world? He sees that place of your motivations. But it's also chilling, (laughs) really, because what else do I know about my inner world? Yipes. God sees that also. As Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. That's Proverbs 4.23. So when God talks about a person's heart, he is certainly not speaking about externalities that can be seen. This word heart is descriptive of our inner world. The inner world of motivations and longings. And what we treasure. He is really addressing the hidden fount from which everything else flows. For example, in Luke 6, Jesus says this, The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. 
for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Matthew 15, he says something similar. He says, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false, false witness, slander. So what he's saying here, of course, is, is manifestly true. We see the truth of this, that heart, our hearts uh, have this way of overflowing in what we do. <laughs> um, and it is... Is the, is the seat of our motives, our longing, what we treasure. So because Jesus is addressing what is inward, not outward, he does not say, blessed are the pure in conduct. And that would be the opposite in meaning from pure in heart. For example, in Matthew 23, 27 through 28, he is speaking to the most squeaky clean people you can find on planet Earth the absolute Michael Jordans of law-keeping. There is nobody who's better at keeping the law than the people he is speaking to. For all outward appearance, these men are wholesome, religious, upright. You might even say they seem perfect. But Jesus says this in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Outward appearances, the things we say and do, may line up with the inner reality of a person, and certainly that is the goal for us as Christians, to live outwardly, visibly, in a way that makes visible our inner treasuring of Jesus. Isn't that the goal? Isn't that what we want to do? And to varying degrees, at different times, we are maybe even successful to some extent. I think there have been times in my life where my inner treasuring did find outward expression. And then there are many other times where the inner world was wildly different, like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde kind of a thing going on. However, outward appearances, although we want to make our inner world and our outward world line up, outward appearances can sometimes be deceiving. Sometimes how a person appears on the outside is for all intents and purposes, a disguise. It's a whitewashed tomb, beautiful on the outside, but full of rot and decay on the inside. This is what Jesus is describing in Matthew 15. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The outward appearance is different from who they are in their hearts, and we have a word for that, don't we? It's hypocrisy. So the heart, the inner reality of a person, is utterly crucial to Jesus. That your heart is what you are. Full stop. And Jesus came into the world because we have hearts that are deeply wrong and wicked and which desperately need to be made pure. And for me, this sixth beatitude is kind of a strange mix of encouraging and discouraging language. It's exciting language, and like language that makes me feel 
something close to despair. A seeing God is a thrilling and encouraging thought. That's the promised inducement here. That's the reward which results in a blessed happiness. You will see God if you are, but then that's attached to pure in heart. And I go, oh, I really want to see God, but I know some things about my heart, and it is a muddy mix in there. It is a mess. What do I do with that? By the way, some people are not excited about the idea of seeing God. Uh, I think uh, it's really fun to talk to little people sometimes, because they will say the quiet part out loud. (laughs) And I find that like when I'm talking to little kids, I find I can get them excited about the idea of heaven. Heaven as this place, pleasures at the right hand of God forevermore. But then when I talk about seeing God, it's almost like saying, hey, uh, really exciting news. We're going to go and meet the guy who designed a roller coaster. They're like, well, if you had said we're going to go on a roller coaster, that's exciting. But see the guy who designed it? Okay, I guess. (laughs) And so I think some people really do see the reward is you're going to see God. And they kind of go, I guess he can be there too, right? But really, I'm excited about heaven because I imagine it as this big family reunion that God is going to put together, and it's going to be full of amazing delights that God made, almost as though I'm going to enjoy what the gifts of God, and I guess he can be there too. Like, that's fine. This is really just a failure of imagination. Guys, the fact that this crops up in our hearts is just fact, a, a product of our fallenness, that, that we don't, our hearts don't rise and thrill to the idea of seeing God, it is really just owing to a complete failure of our human imaginations. What this is maybe, of all of the promised inducements in the Beatitudes, this is the highest summit of them all. This is the sum total of our hope, that we will one day see God. But again, it's attached to this language that the ones who see God are pure in heart, and that makes me feel instantly discouraged. If only the pure in heart will see God, what hope do any of us have? Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So this brings us to the second half of our message. Having addressed the matter of the heart, we now transition to talking about the heart of the matter, (laughs) which is what do we do about this purity of heart stuff? What does this mean? Does it mean that what's required in order to see God is that your inner world be marked by moral perfection? The absence of any sinful thoughts or inclination Isn't that what a pure heart would look like? I want to talk a couple different things here that maybe might help put a finer point on what I believe Jesus is meaning uh, when he talks about us being pure in heart. It seems to me that everything in this beatitude hinges off of what that means, and I want to suggest to you two interrelated meanings. First, this word that's used for pure is the Greek word katharos. 
And I know it seems like every week in this uh, study of the Beatitudes, we're having Greek lessons. Um, but the Greek word here for pure is katharos, and katharos has a variety of uses, but it often means pure in the sense of being undivided or singular. So basically, I think one, one of the meanings that's meant here by pure in heart that Jesus is communicating is this is describing a heart that is sincere, single-minded, and undivided in its loyalties. Psalm 86.11 says this, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. The psalmist there is saying, Oh, God, give me a pure heart. Give me an undivided heart. Give me in my inner world a, a, a North Star kind of loyalty to you, <laughs> a desire for you. James 4, 8 says this, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James there links this idea of purifying your hearts to a person who is double-minded. In other words, their inner world is not marked by singularity. They have two masters. They have um, competing affections. In the Armor of God passage in Ephesians 6, we find something I think that's very similar. Do you guys remember the Armor of God passage? Paul is describing these different things that Christians should put on. Do you remember the very first thing he counsels Christians to put on when putting on the full armor of God? It's the belt of truth. The belt of truth. And at first blush, we might assume that the belt of truth is a reference to God's word. But we know that isn't what Paul is getting at, because later in the same passage, Paul instructs us to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So if Paul has the Word of God in mind when he speaks of truth, here, what exactly does he have in mind when he tells us to put on the belt of truth? The word translated there as truth means truthfulness or sincerity. In other words, he's saying, put on the belt of genuineness. Put on the belt of being the real deal in your inner world. Be pure in heart. Don't be a hypocrite. Operate from a place of sincerity. You will not make much progress in faith or righteousness or the other things that you're told to put on if you're just kind of fiddle-farting with Christianity. If it's an accessory that you put on and take off, you've got to first start by strapping on the belt of truth. You've got to mean it. You've got to be sincere, genuine, pure in heart. This appears to me to be what Paul is getting at. And when we talk about the belt of truth or being pure in heart, one word we have to speak of in connection with these ideas is hypocrisy. In some ways, hypocrisy is the opposite of being pure in heart. Being pure in heart is concerned with consistency in the inner place. And hypocrisy is concerned with outward consistency, visibly maintaining a facade. Hypocrisy is like a fresh blanket of snow covering a trash-strewn yard. Interestingly, our English word for hypocrites comes from a Greek word meaning a play actor who wears a mask. Uh, this is not the biblical word for hypocrite, but our English word for hypocrite. In ancient Greece, all the actors in a play would wear masks. 
So the original meaning, uh, um, when English speakers use the word hypocrite, the original meaning was describing an actor, someone who is disguised and playing a role. And it seems to me that being pure in heart is describing the opposite of that. It is describing someone who operates with sincerity. Maybe flawed, maybe imperfect, maybe inconsistent, but sincere. You mean it. You really do believe it. And when we are pure, sincere, undivided in heart, that will translate into holy living. This is the opposite of hypocrisy or deceitfulness. For, for a hypocrite, godliness, again, is an accessory that they put on and take off as it suits them. It is not the inner reality. And here is something I want us to see and understand about how all this works. What we do outwardly, our works, they reveal things that they can never create. What we do outwardly has the power to the reveal the condition of our hearts, but not to create in us a new heart. This is why Jesus centers our attention and focus on the heart, not outward conduct. Your works, how you live, what you say, how, what you do, has the power to reveal but not create your heart. Our lifestyle will change when we have been given a new heart. But a new heart cannot be brought about simply by changing our lifestyle. Christianity is not like other religions that are obsessed with rites, rituals, and works. God is not satisfied with those kinds of externalities. We can honor him with our lips, but it does no good if our hearts remain far from him. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So without a transformed heart, all of our words are just noise. All of our sacrifice and service, they gain nothing. And in fact, as verse 2 makes clear, without a transformed heart, we are nothing. You are your heart. Full stop. What's needed most is not behavior modification, but to have our hearts transformed. The test is ultimately not about what we do, but what we love to do. Of course, this doesn't have nothing to do with externalities, such as what we say or what we do. Holiness matters. It just means that our outward world, our outward expression, does it reflect an inner treasuring of Jesus or is it meant to disguise? Am I putting on a mask? Or am I operating 
in a broken way, in an inconsistent way maybe, but am I operating from a place of sincerity? Put on the belt of truth. Be pure in heart. Don't be a hypocrite. I uh, was talking with somebody at one point, and they were explaining a struggle with a sin that they'd been struggling with for years, and um, my friend told me, I just got tired of being a hypocrite. And, and at, at, th- at that juncture, there's two ways to stop being a hypocrite, right? You can either just embrace the sin and live in great consistency. <laughs> you can say, I'm tired of being a hypocrite. This is who I am. This is what I love. I'm just going to do it. And everybody ought to know it. Or you can say, guys, this is who I am. This is what I love. And I hate it. <laughs> I confess it. Help me. I'm broken inside. You see, you can be honest about your sin struggles without being perfect. Don't get it mixed up when Jesus is talking here about being pure in heart. He is not saying those who see God are without sin in their conduct. They are without sin because they've been made pure. Jesus took their sin on the cross. That's all in play here. And yes, I believe that when we have been transformed, redeemed, when that is real as a proof and product of us having been saved and the Holy Spirit coming to live with us, we will live differently. There will be an outward, visible embrace of holiness. But when we find ourselves in sin and we're being sucked into a place of hypocrisy, this is really where we're we're being tested about some things. And and am I just going to embrace outwardly my sin because I'm tired of being a hypocrite? Or am I going to say publicly to those who are witnessing it, I hate my sin and I can't seem to stop doing it. Please help me. I confess it. I'm broken. There's many different ways to stop being a hypocrite, but the most disastrous way is just to say, this is what I do. Here's something I want us to see here. We've already talked about the armor of God patch. I didn't set out this week to uh, plan a sermon on the armor of God, but we ended up back there quite a bit. Uh, In Ephesians 6.17, it says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Every single last piece of the armor of God that Paul mentions has a a protective role. In other words, it's, I guess, for lack of a better word, defensive, right? You put on armor to, to block a blow. The sword is not a defensive weapon. In in the days of Paul, a sword existed for just exactly one purpose. What is that? Killing. You carried a sword for the purpose of killing. That's it. You don't plow with it, you don't whittle, you don't fix your truck or your chariot or whatever. (laughs) You have a sword for one purpose, and that's to kill. And we know that Paul didn't have in mind that we would use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, to kill people, because he said, your battle is not against flesh and blood. You're not to wield these things against human beings, and of course, in the church, people do tend to do that sometimes. But swords are absolutely for killing. Killing what? Well, in Colossians 3.5, Paul says this, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil, desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. 
But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. How are you going to put those things to death? How are you going to kill the sin in your life? How will you adopt and, and act upon a warrior ethic towards sin? The thing you've been given is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is what you must wield against sin in your life. But let me clarify further. We don't have the sword of the Spirit simply by having a Bible in your hands. We might say, well, the sword of the Spirit, that's the Word of God. I'll just carry my Bible with me everywhere. (laughs) That's not the way to do it. When the authors of the Bible wanted to refer to the entire content of the Bible, all of its parts, all of its books, all of its chapters and verses, all that is written down and contained in the Bible, they used the Greek word logos. That word logos refers to the Bible in its entirety. But interestingly, here in this verse, Ephesians 6, 17, logos is not the word used when describing the sword of the Spirit as the Word of God. The word here is different than Logos. Instead, Paul uses the word Rima. And Rima, as it is used here and elsewhere in Scripture, does not refer to the entire Bible. Instead, it refers to individual verses and passages from the Bible. So whereas Logos is the word, Rima is a word from the word. It is a specific, timely word. The evangelist Harry Ironside said once of this passage, the Bible is not the sword of the Spirit, it is the armory. There are thousands of swords in the Bible. That's the idea behind what Paul is saying when he talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The idea behind this word is a specific, timely, relevant passage of Scripture for a specific situation. I come back here to the importance of memorization. Uh, Early on in my Christian life, I had a wonderful Christian pastor who mentored me and challenged me to commit myself to memorization. Uh, And his reason was, among others, there's lots of reasons to, well, it says in Psalm 119, hide God's word in your heart. Why? So that you might not sin against him. You see, you need to have the armory ready at your disposal to fight sin. And one such specific word that you might memorize is Matthew 5.8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's say you're suddenly ambushed. You're just going through your day, and you are suddenly ambushed with a temptation of one sort or another. Maybe it's a habitual temptation that crops up from time to time. And not only are you tempted, but you've got great opportunity. And it's there, and it's happening, and your heart is already tipping towards it. You've got to kill that thing. You've got to take the sword and put it to death. And what Matthew 5.8 does is in that moment, as you are tipping towards sin, and you suddenly remember, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This verse brings to mind the future hope that the righteous will see God. And it brings to mind the pleasures you have tasted of seeing God more clearly as a result of obedient living. And you recall how brief and superficial the pleasures of sin is. 
and how the bitter aftertaste of sin's pleasures are left behind after you've enjoyed them. And with that, God kills the conquering, glittering power of sin. This is where the Christian approach to solving problems breaks from the world's approach. Our our culture today says that many of our problems, whether they be personal problems, family problems, societal problems, they come from the outside, they're external, they're found in the environment. Man can be perfected, and we look to human resources, our own inner resources to solve the problems we face, and oftentimes their approach amounts to finding ways to cope with sin and all the consequences that go with it. Just find a way to coexist more peacefully with sin, rather than putting it to death. This teaching of Jesus that a person's heart is the main issue flies directly in the face of what is emerging in our culture as the way to combat sin. Many voices in our culture today argue that a person's troubles are primarily due to their environment. And that what is needed to change people is to change the world that they live in. But the Bible trains us to arrive at a different conclusion. The problem is in me. Where does evil come from? What defiles me proceeds out from me. And the fix, if the problem's inside, the fix is found outside of me in Jesus and the gospel. Our culture says the opposite, that each of us can find the solution by looking within, and that the root of our problems can be found outside of ourselves in our environment. And of course, this overlooks the fact that it was in the perfect environment of Eden that man's first heart, man's heart first fell. For it's out of the heart that evil comes. If you put any son or daughter of Adam into a perfect setting, they will not be helped or reformed by their surroundings. That's because it is out of the heart that evil comes. You cannot legislate virtue. And the reason why I mention this is not to make us all very sad about the state of things (laughs) or to feel hopeless. But because once we arrive at the place, at the conviction that the problem is within and that the environment can't fix problems, then we are primed and ready to understand the gospel, how our hearts can be made pure. Your great problem of sin cannot be fixed by looking within. If you go to your heart looking to find truth there, you are drawing water from a poisoned well. Our problems are inside. Our solution is outside of ourselves, namely in God. And so we come to the necessity of having our hearts be made pure. Over the course of our study through these Beatitudes, we have seen pretty much in all of them that there is an already but not yet dynamic involved. Where, for example, when we talk about theirs is the kingdom of heaven, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a sense, and we talked about this on that Sunday, in which the kingdom is a current reality, and it is something that we look forward to and hope that one day it will come in all its fullness. It is already, but not yet. 
And pretty much every single last one of these Beatitudes we've studied has had that dynamic be part of it. it is begin- we are beginning to experience in the church by the Holy Spirit right now, even now, but one day we will enter into it in all of its glorious fullness when Jesus comes back. We've also noted at several points along the way that uh, there is a, a tension between justification and sanctification. Two really big, see we've got a lot of these big Christian words in our Beatitude study, but justification is basically the once for all transaction when you were made right before God. You were declared not guilty. That's a, not a process, that's a once for all event. Jesus, God took all of your sins and put them on Jesus. He took all of Jesus' reward and put it on you. One and done, it happened. Justification, like that. But then on the tail end of justification comes sanctification. Sanctify, the, the, the root word for sanctification is that sanct, that holiness idea. And so you've been made holy, but then by the Holy Spirit, you begin to become more and more like the God who saved you. You are actually becoming more holy in fact. And so when we talk about this pure in heart, I want you to understand in a very important, real sense that you can cling to, this is meaty and real, you've been made pure. It is done. It is final. (laughs) And it is real. When God looks at you, he does not see you are a low-down, dirty Josh Tate. (laughs) He looks at me and I'm clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. Guys, the purity of Jesus' heart belongs to me. You've been made pure. That's justification. But in a very real sense, also on the tail end of that, begins the process of making me like Jesus in reality. There is no one who is a Christian who is not somebody who loves righteousness. And as a proof and product of the fact that I've been justified, I then enter into with great cheerfulness and joy and, yes, inconsistency, that process of sanctification. We're all kind of stumbling our way home to the Father. But I want us to see that. It is true now, and it is becoming more and more true in our lives. Both are true in the life of a Christian. This beatitude, when it talks about being pure in heart, I think is meant to throw us back in desperation on the first two beatitudes. First beatitude is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the only people who get into heaven are those who confess their needy reliance on God. You, ha- you cannot go to heaven if you think you can get there by paying your own way somehow. And then it says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And what Jesus meant there is, blessed are those who grieve their sin. And when I come to this language about how I must be pure in heart to see God, I instantly go, God, I need you. I can't do that. I don't have the capacity for that kind of purity. Everything I do is mixed and mingled with sin and pride. There is no purity you're right back at the first beatitude, guys. (laughs) You're right back leaning on needy reliance. You're right back saying, God, the only way I can get to heaven, the only way I can see you is for you to give me a purity that's not my own. And then I'm also brought to this place where I'm grieving my sin. And so this is exactly what it's designed to do. 
This beatitude is meant to throw us back in desperation on those first two beatitudes. Don't think you can achieve purity in your inner man. (laughs) That is antithetical to the idea of living in a state of needy reliance on God. This beatitude is similar in its effect on our spirits to the effect of Jesus' words later on in the same chapter. In verse 20 it says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, what a haymaker punch. And then verse 48, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Only those who are pure in heart will see God. You must be perfect. Unless your righteousness exceeds the abilities of the greatest human law keepers, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you feel desperate and inadequate and poor in your spirit when you understand these verses? That is exactly what they're designed to do. They are meant to put to death any notion in you, any pretense that you might achieve heaven in your own efforts. David says this in Psalm 24, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. David also said in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David was a man who lived in needy reliance on God. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. This is God's work. This is God is what is needed. In 1 John 3, 1 through 3, it says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So when we put all this together, here's the final statement. Your heart is what you are. As Christians, we are people who look to God to give us, in a once-for-all transactional kind of way, a purity of heart that puts us at peace with God. But a Christian is also someone who then, on the tail end of that, as a proof and product of the reality of that having happened, adopts a warrior ethic towards the sin in their life. Holiness absolutely matters. It matters eternally. God does not wink at sin. He does not grin at it. He does not sweep it under the rug. Sin is so serious, Jesus died for it on the cross. And so a Christian is somebody who in all needy reliance says, God, I have no purity of heart. I need to be given purity of heart. 
But it also says, God, I am going to begin the work of putting to death the strongholds of sin that are in my life. And an important part of that is arming yourself with words of God that you can employ in a moment of temptation. Uh, We're just about out of time. I've given this analogy before, but it's super helpful for me in understanding how all this works. You guys remember in the Old Testament, God brings the Israelites into the promised land by a miracle, right? He parts the Jordan. Well, first he parts the Red Sea to bring them out. Then he parts the Jordan River to bring them in. And then the river closes in behind them. In other words, they enter into the promise by way of a miracle. And that's true for every Christian, You've entered into all of God's promises by a miraculous work of God. He's brought you in in a way that you can't brag about. You can't say, look at me. (laughs) He just brought you in. It was miraculous. There was no other way for you to be brought into the promises of Christ. But when the Israelites entered into the promised land and the river closed in behind them, in every corner of that land existed people who were behind fortified walls, entrenched and opposed to the conquest of that land that God had promised them. They were brought in by a miracle and then began the work of putting to the sword those fortified strongholds. This is a picture of the Christian life. You've been made pure. You've been brought in by a miraculous work of God, Jesus on the cross. And it's been done in a way that you can't boast or brag about it. But if that's real, if if I'm sincere, if I'm genuine in understanding and embracing that truth, I'm going to strap on the sword and I'm going to go to work tearing down those strongholds that still, in a wild, woolly, entrenched way, occupy space in my heart. That's what we're talking about here when we talk about these things. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, God. Oh, God, thank you that my prospects of one day seeing the glorious things that you have promised, chief among them, God, is you, your unfiltered presence, does not rely on my ability to pull myself up by my bootstraps. God, you have done what is needed. It is generous, sufficient. We rest in it. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And God, we do rest in your promises. We rest in the purity that comes through Jesus. But Father, having been made pure, having been shown such grace and kindness, God, I grieve my sin. I grieve those strongholds that still exist in my heart and mind. I grieve those areas that I habitually go to and where I fraternize with the enemy. And Father, I plead for you to help me put those things to death. God, maybe there is a brother or sister here this morning who is in the midst of a fight with a habit sin. God, I pray that you would bring to to their attention some swords out of the armory that they can memorize, commit to memory, and, and employ, God, in those moments when they feel that they are already tipping, tipping towards sin. 
God, help us tear down, root out, burn up, put to the sword those areas of sin that are so entrenched in our hearts and minds. God, we look forward to the day when we will see you. We thank you for the way that we are beginning to see you even now. And Father, I pray, Lord, that we would put on the belt of truth and pure heart and go out from here this morning, God, in all sincerity to follow you with an und in an undivided way. In Jesus' name, amen.